Well, good morning. So good to, uh, to be here with you guys. So good to have a, a church home decorated for the holidays and able to get into the Christmas spirit there with some, with some singing uh, together about the coming of our Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, which we'll celebrate together uh, here. Uh, and uh, as Shay said, December 24th together, we get to do that. And it'll be so fun. But this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Acts together. I just want to say this. If you're new, if this is your first time here, I just want to say thank you for coming and being a part of our church. And uh, what you see this morning is what you get every single week uh, when we're together. Lots of time to, to be with one another, lots of time singing together, and lots of time in the Word of God together. And then we go out on, on mission for the, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, throughout the week. And we come back and we get to do it again every single Sunday. So... We enjoy that. So grab your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts chapter 2. Um, we're going to be reading and studying verses 1 to 13 together. We started this last week, and we're going to continue this uh, this week as we want to make sure that we give careful understanding to this very important section of Scripture, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 together. So I'm going um, to read it, and then I'm going to pray and ask of the, the Lord's help to give us understanding, and then we'll... we'll give some explanation to what it has to say. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, and Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Our Heavenly Father what a privilege it is to open up the very words of God just right there in front of us. You've spoken to us. You've revealed yourself to us in the word of God. What a privilege it is to now study it and line ourselves underneath the authority of Scripture this morning. Lord, to do that, we need great understanding to have understanding, we need the work of the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide, to illuminate the words that we have just said into our hearts and into our minds. And so would you help us to do that this morning? And we look forward to the things that we learn today that are embedded deep into our hearts. We look forward to the way that's going to transform us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his a precious name that we pray. Amen. I can remember when I was a junior in high school, uh, I was at a fine establishment called Taco Bell uh, in Fresno, California, eating, uh, 
eating a meal, and a pastor came up to me. I didn't know he was a pastor. It came up to me and my friend as we were sitting there, and he started sharing the gospel with us. And we thought, great, this is wonderful. We can do this. Let's talk about the Lord. And we started talking about the Lord together, and the, and the conversation turned when he said to me, well, have you spoken in tongues yet? And I said to him, no, I haven't spoken in tongues. And he said, well, then you're not a believer if you haven't spoken in tongues. And that began a different kind of conversation that I had with him, my friend and I had with him at 17, uh, trying to uh, relay what we understood about salvation in Scripture and trying to bring it all together. Uh, and we came to the end of it, and he stood up, and he looked at me dead in the eye, and he said this, uh, if you continue in the ways of your church, you will surely perish. And I thought to myself, well, this is where the conversation ends. And he left, and I, I left thinking to myself, how in the world did, did that just happen right then? Uh, that someone just told me that if I don't speak in tongues, then I'm not a believer. Uh, is that even biblical? The passage this morning in Acts chapter 2 addresses this very thing about speaking in tongues. And many of you may have uh, in your life some, some friends or even family members who are Pentecostal or charismatic who come out of that background. Maybe uh, even that's some of the background that, that you have had before. And we, there are certainly brothers and sisters in Christ who, who, who we affirm that and, and, and believe these things. But as a church, we believe something different than that. Uh, we believe uh, uh, what we're going to talk about this morning about speaking in tongues and the purpose of speaking in tongues and why they even happen. It all comes down to uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 and the interpretation of what that means. An entire movement began because of this interpretation of Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. A whole theology began there. And so what I want to do is make sure that we understand what the Bible teaches about Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, and even in the bigger picture, not just of this verse, even in the bigger picture of, of Acts chapter, of Acts and what it means for, for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. If you remember with us, I want to go back, because we need to go back and, and, and bring everybody together from what we, we talked about last week in regards to the coming of the Holy Spirit and of Pentecost. If you remember, all the way back in Joel chapter 2, in verses 28 to 32, there is a promise that the Holy Spirit would be poured out among the believers. Okay? It actually gets picked up here in, at Pentecost when Peter stands up and he preaches out of the book of Joel. He even says that I will pour out my spirit. Well, that pouring out of the spirit happened at Pentecost. The word Pentecost means the 50th. 50 days after the Passover feast ended, there was another harvest festival that started, a, a, another, another feast uh, called the Feast of Weeks. 50 days after, uh, as I said, the end of Passover, a time that was celebrated uh, the law of Moses, it was a time of, of celebrating and giving thanks for all, all the provisions that God had given to the people of Israel. You go all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back to Leviticus to find this feast and the meaning of it. God chose Pentecost, the beginning of that feast, to be the day that he would send forth his Holy Spirit to indwell believers. We need to understand this, as it says there, when the day of Pentecost arrived, that means this, that the day that God ordained before the beginning of time would be the day that the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers. It was a specific day. We need to understand this, that this day was not initiated by the apostles. 
This day was not a day that because the apostles came together and believers came together and they began praying, that they called down the Holy Spirit from heaven. No, this was a day that God ordained and that God designed before the beginning of time that he would use Pentecost as a day where he would pour out his spirit to believers. It had nothing to do with what the apostles were doing. It even says there, it says that suddenly, verse 2, suddenly or immediately, it came out of nowhere. What was it like? It was like a, a mighty rushing wind. It, it filled the entire house where they, where they were sitting. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues and give them utterance. This was something that came out of nowhere. They, they didn't know when the Holy Spirit was going to come. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, all the way back in verse 5, it says that, that they would be baptized with water and they were, to, they were to wait there until the Holy Spirit came. They didn't know if he was going to come in one day, five days, 10 days, 20 days, or 100 days. They just knew that he was going to come. And we also need to understand this, that on this day, when the Holy Spirit came, it was in fulfillment of Acts 1.5. It says that they would be baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this last week, that this was an immersion of the Holy Spirit into the lives of the believers. That these apostles and these 120 that were there, when God sent his Holy Spirit upon them, they'd be entirely covered by the Spirit, and listen, in a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is different than what was in the Old Testament that was happening when the Holy Spirit would come upon people at certain times, when God's presence would come uh, uh, around people at certain times, at the tabernacle, at the, tip, uh, uh, at the temple, at Mount Sinai, when God's presence would be there. That's a different dispensation of God, God and the Holy Spirit. At this moment when Pentecost came, a new era be began, a new dispensation began when the Holy Spirit would move from, from times where he would come and go to a permanent indwelling within the life of the believer. A whole new era began at Pentecost. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened where God went from beside them to God be, being within them. And when that happened, the church was born. Remember a few verses that we talked about in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? With you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You now become that temple that was in the Old Testament where, where, where God would reside. You are now the temple of the living God, and the Holy Spirit now resides within you. Permanent indwelling, it says in Ephesians and in 2 Corinthians 1, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, a seal that can never be broken. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, it says this, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. When we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about that moment of regeneration, that moment of conversion, that time where you went from darkness into light and you were baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit, never to be taken from you. It's that moment of conversion. 
Now, as I said, a new age began. The church age begins in this moment. The church is born. And we know this, that Pentecost then, as, we, as this whole book, is a time of transition. If you need a word here, think of, think of a transition from one era, from one dispensation to the next. And when you are baptized into the Holy Spirit, you are placed in the church. The church is not a building. The church are people. You're part of the family of God now, united together in one body, in one spirit. And all of this happened right here in Acts chapter 2, when God poured out his spirit onto these believers. Now, you got to think of it like this. Think of it as um, Pentecost being uh, uh, like an earthquake, like, like there's this massive earthquake that happened, this strong earthquake that happened, and then you have kind of these aftershocks that continue on over and over and over and over again. All right, that massive earthquake isn't going to get repeated. Or think of it as a giant boulder getting thrown into a, a calm pond where you have this massive splash, and then you have this ripple effect that happens over time. It's not exactly like that moment, but the, the same things happen where the Spirit comes and indwells a believer over and over and over again. It's a period of transition. A new pattern now has been set. The epicenter being Pentecost. We'll look at this as we move forward here in this new pattern uh, in, 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 in later, later passages in Acts. There's, there's only... Uh, there's only a handful of places where people speak in tongues in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at those as we move forward. But this is the epicenter. This is where God now moves inside the believer, where now each of us are united together because of the Holy Spirit. And it says there in verse 4, and they were what? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to yield your life to the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Ephesians 5, it, it contrasts that with, with not being drunk with wine, but, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit of the living God. And when you're filled up with the Spirit, listen closely, when you're filled up with the Spirit, the response to that will be that you will be singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. You'll be making melody in your heart towards God. And then it goes down. If you keep going in Ephesians chapter 5, your relationships then will be in order. Well, you will live in a submissive way to your husband. Husbands, you will live in a loving way to your, your wife. Children, you will obey your parents. All of it is surrounded by relationships because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So baptism of the Holy Spirit is positional. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is practical. The way you live your life is in yielding to the Holy Spirit. So just by way of bringing us all together, by the way, that was all kind of uh, from last week, just getting us all up to speed here. We were looking at, number one, we saw this point, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Secondly, we saw the filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Third, now, we see this, the response to the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It says this, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the first response of this crowd that was there. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak in what? Other tongues as the Spirit 
gave them utterance. What does this mean, speaking in other tongues? Well, if we keep reading down, we don't want to just take that verse and rip it out of context here. We want to leave it in the context because actually verses 5 to 13 tell us exactly what this means. In fact, in verse 6, it says that as the sound of the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak, underline this, in his own what? Language. Verse 8, it says this, and how is it that we hear each one of us in what? His own native language. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our what? Own tongues the mighty work of God. What happened here when the Holy Spirit came upon these 120 believers, they were able to speak in a language that was real, that was distinct, that was understandable. It was an actual language, an unknown language that these believers were given. There's one that they previously had never known before. It says it very clearly in verse 6, in verse 8, and in verse 11, that these are known languages. In fact, the, the Greek word, there's two Greek words here that, that are used for this. One of them is, is, the word, is the word that we get dialect from. Dialecto in the Greek. It has to do with the different kind of dialects that come from these languages. Real languages, these, are, these were unknown languages that they didn't know. At one time, they, they were there. They didn't know these other languages. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and now they were able to speak in these languages that would be used to spread the gospel. And just to make sure that we're clear as to what these languages are, it's literally listed out for us. Every single one of them that was there, they were able to use these languages that are listed out for us right here that would be used for the advancement of the gospel. It was as if the Holy Spirit knew, it was as if God knew, hey, I bet they'd get confused about the languages. Let me clear it up. Verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, let me clear it up here. These are the known languages that they spoke that they previously had no understanding Never studied these languages before. They learned them in that moment. Which means this, these were nonsensical, these, the, these tongues here were not any sort of gibberish. They were not any sort of nonsensical syllables that were made up, sounds that were made up in their mind and in their heart that they, they decided to just, just bring forth these unknown Sounds. We're told specifically that these were languages that were that, that that were native to certain people. And yes, this is miraculous. In fact, it was so miraculous. Look at what it says in verse 7. It says this: they were amazed and astonished. They couldn't believe it. Not, not only was this happening, but who it was happening to it was happening to. To Galileans, who, was, who were those who were probably maybe known as the, the uneducated ones. How are these uneducated people? We can't give any explanation to this because all of a sudden, they now know a language that they had never known before. 
They, 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 they literally come to the end of the chapter or the end of uh, the section we read in verse 12. They come to the end of it and they say to themselves, what does this mean? How is it that they're able to do this? It's a miraculous event. They were shocked. This is another response of the people. In verse 6, it says that they were bewildered. They were shocked at this. How is it that they're able to give such clarity to this language that they had never known before? You say, why is it? Why, why did God choose the speaking in tongues and these other tongues as the means that this would be the sign of, at this point, for these new believers? Well, you've got to remember this. In the Old Testament, we can, all, we can go all the way back if we want. We can all go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. You guys remember the Tower of Babel? At the Tower of Babel, there was also a, a similar event like this, except it was very opposite to what this was. At the Tower of Babel, there, there was this attempt to, to become like God, to reach God into the heavens. And what does God do? God scatters them, and all of a sudden, there's such confusion. And the confusion is over what? Languages. Right? And there was a, this was a, a curse that went upon from God, and, they, and the people were scattered because of the language. They didn't know anything that was happening. They couldn't figure out what was happening, and they, they used the languages to scatter the people. But not only that, when we think about what was happening here in the book of Acts and this transition here, if we think about even in the Old Testament, the relationship that God had with the people of Israel is that God had chosen the people of Israel to be the ones by which the Messiah would come, would be the nation by which they would be the bright light where all the nations would come to Israel and they'd come to Israel and they'd say, this nation is different. And the reason this nation is different is because they worshiped Yahweh. But what happened was, is over the course of time, Israel didn't worship Yahweh. They brought in other Baals. They brought in other idols, and they began to worship those idols. Then Jesus sends the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what does Israel do? Israel flat out rejects the Messiah. So what does God do? In that moment, he, he then turns and says, okay, salvation isn't just for the Jews. It is now opened up to the Gentiles. It is now opened up to the rest of the world. And now the means by which... People will know that I am God, that I am the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And people, the way the world will know that is I am going to send you out now into the nations. No more will the nations come to you. Now you will go out into the nations. And the only way that was going to happen for these 120 people is this, is if they knew the language. The only way Acts 1-8 would be fulfilled that they would go from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There was no Bible. There were no scriptures. These disciples, these 120, needed to know the language. So what did God do? He gave them the language. So now what can they do? They can fulfill Acts 1-8. What does Acts 1-8 say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The speaking in tongues happened so that the gospel could go forth just as Christ had said it would go forth. The reason he gave the tongues was so that they could become the first missionaries to advance the kingdom of God at a rapid rate and not have to wait years and years and years to learn the language, but they could actually just go out and do it. Spokesmen, spoke, spokeswomen for God, 
speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ to foreign nations. There is a purpose for this. There is a reason for that. And in this moment, they needed to be equipped to do what Acts 1.8 had promised them to do, to have this incredible power by the Holy Spirit to advance the kingdom of God. The tongues, listen, were never designed for personal edification, personal gratification, or personal confirmation of salvation. There's a much greater reason for tongues, and it was to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts is all about Christ. And the Holy Spirit within the believer then was to continue the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was always designed to point people to Jesus Christ. Always designed to point people to come to Christ. In fact, in Acts 4.12 it says that there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. The power of the Holy Spirit is to point you to Jesus, point you to Jesus, point you to Jesus, not point you to self, not point you to self, but to give all the glory to God. I love what Patrick Schreiner says, if I can give you a quote here to help kind of us understand this. It says, the Spirit affirms ethno-linguistic diversity. The Jews may have expected a purification of the languages into Hebrew, the Jews are expecting, hey, we're, we're going to do this in Hebrew. We're going to advance the gospel in this. But the Spirit affirms the pluralization of the languages and also unites them. Multiple languages and cultures remain intact, but the Spirit breaks down barriers of comprehension. Luke highlights both the diversity and the unity of the crowd. The diversity of the languages leads to people calling on the Lord in their own languages the missiological function is clear. The Spirit empowers the people to witness to those who are far off. He gives people speech that is understandable to others because the Spirit is in the business of spreading the name of Jesus far and wide. So what do you have? You have a reversal of the Tower of Babel, which was meant to scatter, where Pentecost is meant to gather all the nations together. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God amazing? Isn't his plan of salvation even far greater than we can even think or imagine? In fact, it's even a preview into Revelation chapter 5. You've got to see this. Turn to Revelation chapter 5 as, as God would use these things. To even point us towards heaven. This Pentecost would unite us together and bring together all languages and all tongues as people would go out and, and spread to the nations who God is. When I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne of scroll within on the written within and on the back sealed with the seven seals and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals and no one in heaven on earth 
or under earth was even able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as high as it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are in the spirit of the God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying this, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seal for you were slain by the blood. You ransomed people for God. Listen, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to your God, and they shall reign on the earth. This, this picture into heaven is of what? Every tribe of every language of every person who has come together in heaven that God's, of God's elect that are there worshiping him. There's a picture here of what, what God started at Pentecost where they would have these languages to go out and reach all those people. And here they are in heaven assembled now together, worshiping the lamb who was slain. It's beautiful. It's amazing. The way it all ties together. What we have in Acts chapter 2 then is this unique event of transition, a unique event where the mission of God is advanced quicker and faster because they were able to speak in these previous unknown languages as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You say, okay, Joe, if that's true, and I see that there, filled with the Holy Spirit, they, sp they spoke in tongues, is that, is that normal then for today? Has that become the norm for today? I just want to say this from the start. It's, that's not even normal in the book of Acts. Okay? It's not normal in the book of Acts. In fact, at Pentecost, okay, stay with me. At Pentecost, turn, turn over to Acts 2, verse 41. Okay, we're still at Pentecost. It's the same day. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls dead stop. There is no mention of 3,000 souls speaking in tongues. If it was normal that when you were saved that you speak in tongues, it would have happened at Pentecost every single time. It did not happen for these 3,000 people. So either these 3,000 people actually aren't saved, or you don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. It's on the same day. There's two groups of people here. There's the 120 who were given the gift of, of speaking in tongues. And then there was the 3,000 who were not given, given the gift of speaking in tongues. The norm for today surely must be the second group and not the first group. Not all who come to know Christ 
Obviously, at Pentecost, spoke in tongues. It's not the norm. Not all in the book of Acts who came to know Christ as well did not have supernatural power accompanying them. In fact, when you get to Acts 8, when you get to Acts 10, it starts talking about this, uh, these people who do speak in tongues. There's purpose for that. One was for the, for the Gentiles, for us to know the Gentiles. When they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. And one was for the Samaritans. When they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues because there's, there's unity around the way of identifying these new groups into uh, believing who Jesus Christ is. But I, but I want to show you this, what the norm is in the book of Acts when it comes to people coming to know Christ. Okay, so just listen in as, as I read this out. In Acts chapter 3, the lame beggar who came to know Christ did not speak in tongues. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the magician who came to know Christ and was even baptized did not speak in tongues. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and verse 39 did not speak in tongues, but he went on rejoicing in his own way. All the residents of Lydia and, and Sharon turned to the Lord. They did not speak in tongues in Acts chapter 9, 32 to 35. A disciple named Tabitha from Joppa was full of good works and acts of charity, but was not gifted tongues when she came to know Christ. Nothing is recorded at all in, in Antioch in, in Acts 11, verses 19 to 26, of anybody who came to know Christ and speaking in tongues. We could say the same thing about the number of great Jews and Greeks in Iconium. The many disciples at Derby, Lydia, and the household of the Philippian jailer did not speak in tongues. The Bereans, who received the word with all eagerness... Demarius and others who believed in Athens, Justice, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, and the believers in Ephesus who came to know Christ did not speak in tongues. We're only up to Acts 12 at this point. In Acts 13, Acts 14, twice in Acts 14, Acts 16, twice in Acts 16, Acts 17, twice, Acts 18, four different times, and Acts 19 again, you have all these occurrences which sound to be what? The norm. That's the norm in the book of Acts. In fact, if there was ever a place where we would think that this would need to be a requirement for salvation, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 16 with me. There's plenty of time here. By the time Paul is spreading the gospel to teach people what they must do to be saved, this would be the moment of great insertion by Paul to say, hey, here's what you need to do, and you better hope that this happens when you do it. So he says in Acts 16, verse 20, 29, the jailer called for lights. He rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Verse 30, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and you and your household and then he spoke the word of the Lord to them, to all who were in his house. He took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he baptized at once he and all of his family. No mention here of needing to speak in tongues. In Romans chapter 10 in verse, in verse 9, it even says there clearly, 
that if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart and confess in your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Outside the book of Acts, we only come into 1 Corinthians where we find the tongues mentioned again, but by the time you get to the letters written to the churches, you find no mention of tongues at all. If it is, it's very, 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 very minimal. That's because the evidence of a believer is not speaking in tongues. The evidence of a believer is a, is a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who is yielding their life to the, to the Spirit. And the evidence of a believer then is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. It's that the Holy Spirit resides within you and you manifest then the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus said that you will be known by your love and that you will be known by your fruit. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been asked, and I just want to mention this shortly because I want to get to communion. I've been asked, what is the difference between what we, we believe? And I have, I've, I've had this question brought up to me. What is the difference between what we believe and what maybe other churches believe? And again, and again there's, there's plenty uh, of believers and brothers and sisters in Christ that, that believe, believe, believe these things. But I, I want to be clear as to what, what it is we believe and, and the difference between maybe the Pentecostal movement uh, and the charismatic movement and why, why you would see a difference and the main difference is this, is that, is that they believe that there is a so-called second blessing or second uh, 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 baptism of the Spirit that happens after conversion. So you're saved and you get a little dose of the Holy Spirit, and then through some experience, you will receive a second blessing or a second dose of the Holy Spirit, and that second dose of the Holy Spirit is manifest in the speaking of tongues. This was, began in 1901 by the name of Charles Fox Parnham, who put together a college. The college lasted one year, but that college, some students got together and said, hey, the, that we need to restore the Pentecostal power, and the evidence needs to be the speaking, it's the, the speaking of tongues. And out of that movement uh, started the Pentecostal and charismatic movements, where you get a limited dose and then you get a heavy dose of the Holy Spirit. A second blessing, a so-called second blessing. Even heard testimony of people who would say they were, they were saved in one moment and then sometime, sometime later they received this second dose of the Holy Spirit which manifests itself in the speaking of tongues. And part of that doctrine is that they earnestly seek it out. They earnestly seek it out. So there's this desire all the time to earnestly seek out this second wave, the second dose of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there was one article that said uh, in 1977, so we're going way back, in 1977 it says this, the prescription for health that is increasingly being sounded forth within evangelicalism is this, if the church is ever again to set forth relevant and adequate theology, it must not begin with reflection on the person of Christ, but with the reflection on our experience with him through the Holy Spirit. This is a shocking statement. Because it moves from a desire to know and understand who Jesus Christ is and the person of who God is, and it places all the emphasis upon an experience. 
So now experience becomes the authority in the person's life, not the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's an attempt then to recreate Pentecost every time there's a gathering together. Call down the Holy Spirit. Welcome the Holy Spirit. Invite the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must come. It's all about the experience you're about to have today with the Holy Spirit, with the manifestation of that being in the speaking of tongues. And as you can imagine, this is quite dangerous. The importance is no longer doctrine. The importance is no longer growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. The importance is what kind of experience have you had? And let's recreate an experience over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and have you keep coming back to get that experience and experience and experience because it's all about the experience. And now the experience becomes the authority. When it needs to be this, that our genuine experiences that we have must come out of our sound doctrine. We are led by doctrine. We are led by truth. We are led by the knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. We don't base what we believe on our experiences. We base what we believe on objective truth. And the authority becomes the Word of God, and we elevate the Word of God above any experience that we have. And any experience that we have comes out of our knowledge of sound doctrine and the characteristic of who God the Father is, God the Son is, and God the Holy Spirit is. And the authority becomes Jesus Christ. You say, is there any room for emotion? Of course, we should be the most joyful and the most enjoyable people to be around. Because we've grounded ourselves in objective truth. And while our experiences and our feelings will change, the word of God never changes. The objective truth of the word of God never changes. And we line ourselves under that. And we praise and we worship God. Just like they did in Acts chapter 2. What did they say that they did? In Acts chapter 2, in verse 11, it says what? They were telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. That's what happens when your life is spirit-filled. You will praise and worship God, and people are going to know you're filled with the Spirit. You can't help it. My life has changed. The Spirit now controls who I am. I've got to tell you who Jesus Christ is based on the authority and objective truth of the Word of God. And we daily fill ourselves up with the Holy Spirit. Manifests itself in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And we receive the power to go out and preach the gospel. Just like it happened here. That ripple effect. That one time splash of the Holy Spirit. And we're living in the ripples of that as the Holy Spirit comes upon us and changes our lives. Next week we'll... Keep diving into this a little bit more, but I think that's enough for this morning. Let me pray and shake and come up and lead us in communion. Lord, thank you for these truths. New maybe to some of us, reminders for all of us. And Lord, may we receive this, these things in grace and truth and humility. 
you have a plan of salvation and it's perfect. And we're thankful for the way that you've designed it, that one day all nations, all tribes, all languages will come together and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And to hear that in all the hundreds and thousands of languages saying that same thing, what a beautiful, beautiful sight that will be to our eyes and to our ears. In Jesus' name, amen.